Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada you don't take yada yada in life don't take yada yada from your wireless provider metro by t-mobile has no contracts no credit checks no surprises and nada yada yada stop by one of over six thousand metro stores nationwide this episode of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor. Featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select game Gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Noel. Our ride or die, Matt Frederick, is actually on vacation today. Uh, they call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccan. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Now, you know, Noel, I was thinking of a way to open this episode, and I've got to say, I, I thought back on this. I'd like to get your opinion. For a lot of people here in the U.S., the first childhood understanding we have of nuclear technology doesn't come from a textbook. It actually comes from The Simpsons. 
Did, was yeah. that your experience? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just like that iconic shape of those uh, cooling towers, which you used to think, oh, that's where the nuclear stuff happens. But that's not, in fact, the case. Those are just the cooling towers. Um, but that iconic uh, Simpsons opening where you trace Homer's activities like from, you know, his uh, seat at the nuclear power plant in Springfield where he like pushes the button or whatever. I, I guess I'm confusing him with uh, George Jetson a little bit, but it was similar because it was meant to be like a job any idiot could do kind of sort of the joke because Homer is sort of this classic buffoon. And then you see that nuclear rod that accidentally slips into his pocket and then finds its way into like the baby's crib or something. Uh, it's a whole thing where you kind of trace, you know, the movement of this nuclear rod uh, through that opening sequence. Yeah. I like what you say. I like what you pointed out about uh, how Homer is a bit of a you use the word buffoon. Uh, he is kind of an income poop. He's he's lovable, but he's definitely oafish. And despite being one of the dumbest guys in Springfield, he somehow has a job at a nuclear plant that routinely experiences low level or even high level disasters. And interestingly enough, in the show, even though I haven't seen The Simpsons in a while, a lot of these disasters never get revealed to the people living in Springfield. Like the rods just escape. It's sort of the joke, right? I mean, it really is kind of lampooning this whole culture of cover up in American nuclear power uh, from things like Three Mile Island to even like, you know, the Russian uh, attempts to contain the disaster at Chernobyl and this idea that that, you know, those in power can never be wrong. And if we say it didn't happen, then it didn't happen as long as no one finds out, right? Right. I bet Monty Burns would probably love the uh, novel 1984 uh, just as much as us, but for very different reasons. Totally. <laughs> you know, as it turns out, you know, the, the things like this can happen in the real world, but spoiler alert, when they do, they're not near as funny as uh, a plot line in The Simpsons. Wait, you mean three-eyed fish aren't cuddly, cute little creatures that, that just flop around with a smile? You know, I, I have to point out, maybe this is an episode for another day, but I was immensely um, heartbroken to learn that when those kind of mutations occur, they usually don't result in a living animal, certainly not one that makes it to adulthood. That's a shame. And certainly not one that's cuddly that you could model like a plushy toy after, right? <laughs> right. Agreed. So... We are going somewhere with this today, Conspiracy Realist. Uh, we were inspired to make today's episode via an email from Wayne C. Uh, Wayne C., you wrote to us a while back and you said, have you covered the Santa Susana Field Laboratory? Is this something you could cover? And Wayne, you go on to mention that you were surprised so very few people have heard about this. And in fact, peek behind the curtain, uh, we had not heard of this either. So here are the facts. The Santa Susana Field Laboratory um, is, was, let's, uh, yeah, we can use past tense in terms of when it was operational, uh, a massive complex of research and development uh, labs located in Simi Valley, which is in Southern California. Uh, and it has a long history. Um, it really is one of those classic kind of the atomic age kind of, you know, 1940s kind of facilities where it was really, you know, the dawning of a new era and all that. Uh, and nuclear power was the wave of the future. Uh, so, yeah, it's been operational doing one thing or another 
another since around 1947, uh, two years after the detonation of the world's first nuclear weapon, an aerospace company called uh, North American Aviation decided to build a facility located in a rural part of the hills above Simi Valley. And at first, the purpose of the site was to test rocket engines. Mm -hmm. And they did this for a long time from 1949 to 2006, the U.S. space program routinely used this site to develop and test a very tricky part of uh, rocketry, which was liquid propellant. Liquid propellant uh, is is some high-grade stuff. You know, it's surprise. It's complicated. Uh, it's also very dangerous in terms of the contaminants uh, that, it, you know, in terms of just the, the chemicals themselves. But that's not all they did. As you mentioned, Noel, in 1953, under the supervision of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, that's the predecessor of the Department of Energy, uh, the field lab, we'll call Santa Susana uh, SF, SSFL for this, they added something they called Area 4. And from 1953 to at least 1980, Area 4 was home to nuclear reactors. From 1966 to 1998, the U.S. government actually sponsored a liquid metal research center at the site. Does that mean they were making T-1000s, Ben? Is that what that means? One would hope. Uh, I think some of that work is still probably classified. We don't know. Uh, but liquid metals, just like nuclear materials, just like liquid rocket propellant, also, is not the kind of stuff you know you want to play with. Uh, it's not the kind of stuff you want to see at the bottom of the slide in your local playground. And you know, speaking of civilian stuff, that's one interesting part of SSFL. Santa Susana is only about seven miles northwest of Canoga Park. It's only. 30 miles northwest of downtown L.A., this huge population center. Yeah, it's true. Um, there's a community called Bell Canyon that runs across the entire southern border. And here's the thing. Despite that close proximity to, you know, people's homes and to residential areas and to schools and churches and libraries, for many people to this day, the site and the activities that took place inside of it have remained shrouded in mystery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I said on an earlier episode, I think, Q. Tom Waits, what's he building in there? This, You're right. This site was the home of numerous secret projects that were private-public partnerships. That's pretty common, you know, especially in the aerospace industry mm -hmm. or the nuclear industry. And it sounds crazy to say, well, the locals eventually just came to accept that there was this weird facility uh, on the, you know, on the other side of, of the park or in town, and they just went about their daily lives. But we have to remember, first off, it's uh, crazy how quickly things become normal. And we also have to remember that this, uh, a lot of this work was occurring throughout the Cold War, right, from the very end of World War II. So there's a little bit of patriotism tied up in there. There's a little bit of, um, you know, people tended to trust the government more in general. So they were like, <laughs> it's Those true. Fools. I uh. mean, yeah, no one saw it coming. But, uh, but because of that, you know, there's, a, I think there's a sense of inherent nationalism there. Like we may not know what they're doing, but we're the good guys and they're the 
goodest of the guys. Exactly. Oh, Ben, th- I, I watched in, in researching for this. There's a really cool documentary on uh, on YouTube called Atomic Cowboys. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a little 30 minute doc about this whole situation, but. It intersperses all of this amazing footage that you've probably seen. Some of it is really idyllic, kind of like Ozzy and Harriet type, you know, neighborhoods and, you know, all of that stuff interspersed with like stop, drop and roll or, or not stop, drop and roll, duck and cover that kind. That's the one. Sorry. Stop, drop and roll is completely different. Uh, but they had these things, these uh, communities that were built, situated near these facilities. They were called atomic cities. And it was like almost a point of pride to live in these. It was like you were part of the future, you know, and all of these little, you know, pretty much propaganda videos, let's be honest, are, are really just showing, oh, and just like anyone else, little Johnny's on his way to school, and, and here's, uh, you know, his mother Margaret, and oh, and father's coming home from work at the plant. You know, everything's hunky-dory here in Atomic City, um, and it's absolutely sh- covering up just the image there and that associating it with that nationalism and that kind of uh, Sears catalog kind of um, idealism. There's a real nasty underbelly going on that we're going to get into that this was all kind of trying to cover up, if if not at, at completely purposefully, definitely subconsciously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget um, a DVD short film series that I subscribed to a long time ago from the makers of McSweeney's. It's called Walfen. I think um, Mission Mm. Control has seen some of those too. Uh, You can, there was one episode that had uh, a damning look into the private public partnerships. It's a paint commercial. Uh, And you might be able to find this on YouTube. And the paint commercial actually shows, is by a private paint company, and it actually shows uh, how great the paint that they produce is because it can withstand certain aspects of a nuclear detonation. And I think they got that footage uh, because of a partnership with the U.S. government. Things were very sticky. Like, if you think... If you think business and government are way too friendly and corrupt in the modern day, first off, you're right. Secondly, this is actually a little bit better than it used to be in this regard. Absolutely no separation of church and state in that regard back in those days. I mean, Uncle Sam uh, was very, very, very cozy with private industry. And it, it unfortunately feels like we're rolling back to a situation that's starting to resemble the 40s a little bit in that respect nowadays, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, let's get more into what were they building in there. It was uh, used, uh, they had 2,000 acres that were used um, for the testing and development of rocket engines for the U.S space program and for other um, weapons research, advanced weapons research. And during its history, more than 30,000 rocket engine tests were conducted at, I'm going to, I'm going to crib a a name. I saw a press conference with some of the former employees. They call it Santa Sue, which I Mm kind of dig. So we're conducted there at Santa Sue. Yeah. Yep. 30,000. Now that that counts uh, all all kinds of tests. That counts, you know, actual launches to just like, hey, let's rev up the engine and see if it explodes. Uh, they were also, as we mentioned, they were conducting a lot of nuclear research over the course of forty years or so. That one specific area at the complex, Area Four, would eventually be home to ten different nuclear reactors, a fabrication facility to make plutonium 
a fuel facility for uranium and something called a hot lab. That's that's a way to re, that's where they remotely maybe machine parts or separate radioactive material. And uh, the reason they're doing it remotely, of course, is because it is a death sentence to be exposed to a lot of that stuff for a significant amount of time. So we can understand why why the U.S. government, why Uncle Sam was not in a hurry to tell the public, hey, we're, we're building a nuclear site. Um, we're trying to be safe. But just, just so you know, uh, duck and cover, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't work. Like, uh, you you know, some of our um, older audience members today, you you may have gone to school at the time when people were conducting those nuclear attack drills, especially during like the Cuban Missile Crisis. From what I understand, they told kids to just get under their desk. I I don't know. Maybe the desk that they were using were uh, a much higher quality than the desk we grew up with. Yeah, it basically would generate some kind of Pompeii-level duck and covering skeletons. You know, that's kind of what would happen there, I think. But they had little cartoon turtles that were telling you how to do it. So who who doesn't believe a cartoon turtle? You know, I love I love a cartoon mascot. Yeah, stick those on anything. You know, I'll I'll do whatever they say, literally. (laughs) Right, as an adult. We need a cartoon mascot for the show, so send your suggestions to conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. We'd love to check them out. But, you know, this place did not have a cartoon mascot. It was very much um, not off the books, but it it was very much like a need-to-know basis as far as what was going on, and it's no surprise that they were doing that. That's not inherently evil because they, you know, you want to prevent rival governments from learning about your nuclear process. You want to stop those leaks. But here's the problem. Uh, despite the fact, despite their intense efforts to hide this from the public and from their rivals, the truth came out in drips and drabs because people started getting sick. What are we talking about? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. 
I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Here's where it gets crazy. Yeah, authorities, um, as you said at the at the end of the first half, Ben or third, whatever. I don't, I don't know math. Um, the research was hidden; it was obscured uh, by the government. Um, Santa Sue it required that level of uh, discretion, but hand in hand with that went some. Much less savory, shall we call it, obfuscations. I'm using some $5 words today. Um, and they, in fact, covered up and hid several, multiple uh, disasters that had longstanding effects on employees and their families' lives. This is this is amazing. Okay, this is amazing in the worst way. So if you ask, before we get into this, if we were to all, everybody listening and, and all of us here, if we were just hanging out and we asked everybody in the room, um, what are what are the big nuclear disasters? We'd say stuff like Chernobyl. We'd say stuff like um, the nuclear accidents, not the bombings. Mm-hmm. We'd say, say Three Chernobyl, Mile Island. Three Mile Island, of course. Uh, Fukushima or something. This should be on that list. The yes. first, like the the first huge nuclear reaction date or accident dates all the way back to 1959. One of the nuclear reactors, again, just 30 miles away from Los Angeles, partially suffered a meltdown. Workers tried to repair it, and when they couldn't, their uh, the the management of the of the facility said, "You know what." Open the door of the reactor. Let that radiation out into the air. This this means it is virtually certain that that irradiated material spread to those nearby communities we mentioned early, such as uh, Canoga Park or Simi Valley, Chatsworth, and they they did eventually, like more than a month later, have some kind of press statement, but it was very much um, not the truth. Six weeks after the meltdown, the Atomic Energy Commission, again, the predecessor to the uh, the Department of Energy, issued a statement saying that there had been a minor, a little, a little oopsie. Uh, they called it a fuel element failure, uh, but that there had been, quote, no release of radioactive materials into the environment. 
And and that just wasn't true. Uh, NASA, yeah, no, NASA and aerospace company Rocketdyne, which I love the name of that. It sounds like something out of one of the Fallout games, um, which, by the way, I'm downloading Fallout 76 right now. I'm really excited. This uh, Doing this research made me crave that kind of nuclear wasteland, like hmm. 1940s apocalyptic vibe. So looking forward to playing that. But yeah, Rocketdyne uh, continued to use the site for thousands of rocket tests. Like, this was a non-issue through the 90s uh, or the early 90s, 1990. Those activities um, also released all sorts of toxic chemicals into the air and deposited them in the groundwater, uh, the surface water as well, and also the soil. All of this was also covered up. Yeah, you could say I was buried. Uh, I don't know why your kids are getting sick. Maybe you should be a better parent, et cetera, et cetera. These are the types of terrible lies uh, and misdirections that people in power can employ. We mentioned that during its history, during the history of SSFL, there was not just that one accident in 1959. There were several nuclear accidents at the lab. But when we mentioned Three Mile Island, what we didn't mention is that multiple experts believe that partial meltdown at Area 4 could be the worst nuclear disaster in U.S. history if you measure the amount of radiation released. It may have released more radiation than what was released during Three Mile. Uh, NBC did some fantastic deep dive journalism on this with some other sources, and I like the way they put it. They said the... 1959, Santa Susana Field Laboratory sodium reactor experiments level is unknown, but it's thought to have released 260 times more radiation than the Three Mile Island disaster. It is insane that that was not all over the news. Uh, Three Mile, by the way, occurred March 28th, 1979, so 20 years later, and still probably didn't beat the hidden record of SSFL. Can we just really quickly talk about how radiation works? I, I, I didn't really fully grasp it uh, until I saw the television special Chernobyl. They do such a good job of explaining how it really damages your body. Basically, radiation particles are like you can think of them as physical things. They penetrate your body and damage your tissues and if you're bombarded with like high levels of radiation as many of the folks uh, who were unfortunate enough to have been in Chernobyl were it will start to make you melt from the inside out for lack of a better expression I mean you will get lesions on your skin it it really is like some uh, sci-fi nightmare kind of body horror like David Cronenberg type stuff but with just a little bit of radiation it might not be enough for you to register it like physically like that but it can um, damage cells in your body and cause mutations and cause you to get things like cancer uh, that's a big one. And it's just because these things shoot at you. And the way they describe it in the, in the show is like bullets. You know, they're like each one is like a little radiation bullet, you know, and it depends on where it hits that kind of determines what the effects will be and how dense, uh, the hail of bullets that you're receiving is. Mm hmm. Yeah. And to uh, explain what I mean by a level five event, I said three mile island. So the level five event, uh, this, this 1959 incident is probably higher. There is something called the International Nuclear Event Scale. It goes from zero to seven, uh, with zero being an anomaly with no 
no real safety consequence to level seven, a major accident. Uh, these are world-changing events. Uh, right now, there are only officially two level seven disasters, Chernobyl and Fukushima. So 1986 and 2011. But for something to be a level five incident, like Three Mile Island, that means it is an accident that has wider consequences, things that go beyond the immediate environment. It means it can impact people around. That means there will be at least several deaths. Uh, that means that there will also be uh, uh, opportunity for more critical failures in the future, unless something's done immediately. So that that it's a big deal. On a one out of seven, this was at least a five. And we mentioned that the management at the time just said, you know, open the door. Uh, you let the radiation out, not because we're jerks, uh, but because this is the only way to prevent the reactor from exploding. The employees were also given back teen to clean off the walls. Right, which is just basically just an antiseptic. I mean, it's just the same Bactine you would spray on a boo-boo. You know, if, you're, if your kid, like, skinned their knee, you'd spray Bactine. And this is what they would use to clean off this, uh, this stuff from the walls. And then they used Kotex pads for the floors. They were sworn to silence. Omerta, don't tell anyone, not even your spouse. That's just one disaster. There was another one that occurred two years before, in 1957. And, and really quickly, too, I mean, there was, uh, when you say Omerita, it was almost like it was a strong arm kind of attitude where someone asked, uh, there's in that documentary I was talking about, one of the employees or the, the lab workers asked, like, am I, am, can I tell my wife about this? Like, this is, uh, this seems like it would affect her and my family. And they were like, you will not breathe a word of this. Like, under, you know, implied threat. You know what I mean? The tone. He said he was very scared for his safety because there was like, you know, a military official that was kind of like this strong man kind of in the background, uh, sort of looming large. And uh, yeah, there was there was this implied uh, threat for sure of you will not tell anyone about this. I mean, consider, you know, once again, it's the argument of the greater good. What is one person or two people or a hundred people's lives worth when compared to nuclear supremacy? They, they really thought that they could and should do anything legal or illegal necessary uh, to win first place in the arms race. So that's why these things keep getting covered up. The 1957 case is a uh, hot lab, not a, not a reactor. Again, that's the stuff to remotely handle or machine radioactive metal. This was a site of a fire that got out of control. And the fire can transport these irradiated substances much further than they normally would be. Uh, we also have, we, we also know for sure, now in 2020, we know for sure that at least four of the sites, 10 total nuclear reactors, became accident sites at some point in their career. Yeah, I mean, there there were some interviews in the documentary I keep referring to, uh, uh, Nuclear Cowboys, I think is what it's called. Highly recommend you check it out. Um, some old stock interviews uh, that were like testi testimonies, I think. I, I can't quite place the sources, but it was referred to as a very slipshod operation. Um, and, you know, we just know back in those days, standards weren't what they are today. I'm sure they were... 
doing the best they could with what they had, I guess. But no, no, this one's just really out of control bad. Um, ben, I, I think I may have told you I used to work for Georgia Public Radio, and my beat was a facility near where I lived in Augusta called the Savannah River Site, which was actually built uh, right around the same time as, as Santa Sue, and they um, refined nuclear material, um, you know, for weapons, you know, for nuclear nuclear weapons payloads. Um, and then over time, uh, it was converted into a place to reclaim um, nuclear materials from, you know, these kind of spent nuclear cores or whatever from these from these weapons. And it was part of the Atoms for Peace program where they would actually kind of convert these weapons into material they could then reuse. But uh, it became a, a big source of, you know, uh, activists kind of ire because they were dumping um, radioactive materials into open pits in the ground, uh, then become what's called super fund sites, which I always thought, you know, that doesn't sound like super fun at all, but it's fund uh, with a D because it designates the kind of government assistance that it is given to help clean up these sites. And that is a big thing with uh, this that we'll get into a little later. But right away, this idea of these very dangerous methods of disposing of nuclear material at the sites becomes a big issue as well. Yeah. So uh, as I was saying, you know, I think it's worth the time to walk through the other nuclear accidents. You can maybe, you can maybe call the 1959 uh, sodium reactor. You can call that a disaster, but also in March of 1959, just a few months before the Soviet, mm-hmm. uh, the Soviet reactor, uh, the AE6 reactor experienced a release of fission gases. So again, contaminating the environment. In 64, another reactor had damage to 80% of its fuel. In 69, another reactor had damage, luckily to only a third of its fuel. But again, remember, the fuel is nuclear material. And then there was a fire in 1971. Another fire. Another fire, yeah, a radioactive fire, mind you. And again, this the smoke and the heat really does a number on carrying these particles, uh, you know, far and wide, right? Uh, and this one involved combustible primary reactor coolant, or NAC, uh, contaminated with mixed fission products. Uh, and these reactors also didn't have containment structures. This is a big deal because the that directly puts the workers at risk because uh, we'll get into a little later. They weren't required to wear like hazmat suits. They were wearing some form of protection, but it certainly wasn't all encompassing. And the reactors didn't have containment structures. Uh, They were essentially uh, giant concrete domes, uh, those cooling towers that surround most nuclear reactors, right? They didn't have that. So it was just kind of emitting these particles into the air. Now we get into the the disposal part, which is just, you know, uh, ridiculous. Um, They were called burn pits, um, sodium burn pits. Uh, There were multiple spills and contamination events involved with these. And these burn pits were essentially open air pits that were used for cleaning parts or components of of the different machinery that had been contaminated by radioactive sodium um, and was also contaminated by the burning of radioactively and chemically contaminated items. And very few, if any, safety precautions were taken. The ones I was talking about at Savannah Riverside, they at least kind of lined them with some material, like sort of like a barrier against the groundwater or against the, you know, leaking, leaching into the soil. But if I'm not mistaken, Ben, these were just 
pits that were dug right into the ground. Yeah, one thing I would say uh, to be absolutely fair for these folks is that there were a lot of things they didn't understand that we do know now in the in the you know, in the realm of safety around radioactive nuclear materials. But they they knew more than enough to know that this was a horrible idea. I'd like to put a human face on this by introducing a guy named James Palmer. Uh, he may have showed up in, the, in some other documentaries too, but he did some interviews with journalists years later. He was a former worker at uh, SSFL, and he had a crew of 27 people. Of those 27 people, 22 died of cancer. Cancer is a horrible thing. It happens for a number of reasons, but there is a clear correlation here to say otherwise is to willfully be ignorant. He know, he he describes stuff in this interview where like he would come home from work and he would be feeling, you know, kind of normal, maybe a little pooped because it, you know, he'd been working all day. He would try to kiss his wife hello, and her lips would be burned because of the chemicals he had been breathing at work. They actually fished in one of three ponds that were irradiated, and sometimes the water was so polluted that this being real life, the fish didn't develop three eyes. They just died off and started floating on the surface. Uh, and they would try to like when they were fishing, they would try to like wash the fish uh, with hydrogen peroxide to to neutralize a, a, any kind of contamination. But obviously, that doesn't work. Uh, he said that every single water source there was contaminated. He sums it up in an interview with um, the Ventura County Star by saying this was a horror show. And you know, when we talk about how they disposed of stuff, it just gets worse. Yeah, and, and and by the way, it's really fascinating that every every source that I found about this story is from the LA Times or from somewhere out there in that part of the country. It really was just not a national news story. It's it's mind boggling. I mean, you know, because now we're seeing multiple, uh, just absolutely egregious, um, you know, uh, events taking place at this facility, um, and they were covered up. And so, um, back to the disposal. Sometimes, and this came from from interview. I believe it was with Palmer um, because he definitely did some some interviews and, and uh, made made the rounds. Um, but there were a few others as well. So forgive me if I'm mistaken there. But um, a gentleman who worked in the site. At the time, um, many years later, 50 years later, uh, was was doing this interview and talked about how sometimes they would dispose of radioactive sodium by rowing bundles of the stuff. I say bundles loosely. That's just the term I'm using uh, out into the middle of one of those ponds in a small rowboat and then dropping it into the water. And then the workers would turn back and row to shore duck for cover and then peek up like you would taking cover in like a shooter game and fire a shot with a 30-06 rifle at that bundle out in the water. It reminds me of some sort of twisted Viking funeral kind of, you know? Uh, and then it wouldn't like cause it to explode by igniting a spark. No, it was the water that would cause it to explode because the water would then penetrate the sodium and react violently. A massive explosion would ensue. Um, and, and they did this pretty frequently. And they were supposed to be just, quote unquote, disposing of clean sodium. But like you said, Ben, oftentimes in those burn pits, 
uh, radioactive sodium would end up in there as well with radioactive contamination. So this would leak into the groundwater. It would create that smoke, the explosion that would carry it into those bedroom communities, those atomic Ooh. cities. Yep, yep. And look, I, I know what a lot of us are thinking right now when you hear that. You're thinking, but hey, aren't explosions cool? Yeah, that's objectively true. Explosions are really cool, but radiation is not. So, uh, so you know, you can kind of get a picture, an implication here that this is a bit of a um, diversion for some of these guys too, because you get to see this massive explosion, but it's not worth the price we paid. So if this was all secret, if this was happening under the dark of night, if people were being threatened to be quiet about it, then how do we know about it today? How do Wayne C. send us an email? How are we getting these facts? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All my friends love it. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. We're back. So I mentioned earlier at the top of the show that this cover-up continued for quite a while, you know, from the late 40s on. Uh, but one one thing that I think stymied efforts to cover up these uh, these close calls in this nuclear disaster is just simply the medical data. 
people who lived in the area were getting cancer at a much higher rate than you would expect out of a population. It was at a level such that other people in the area started to notice. You know what I mean? Like six-year-olds don't usually have these kind of diseases, and multiple ones don't. And uh, I believe it wasn't until the 1970s that things started to come out. Not the full extent, but started to leak to the public. And, and by that point, I would guess it was kind of already an open secret in the region. What do you think? Yeah, it wasn't until November of 1979 that a KNBC TV report uh, revealed that evidence of that partial meltdown. Uh, I can't, it's just shocking to me. That's almost the 1980s, and this had been going on since the 40s. Yeah, yeah. And it may have been a, a situation where, I hate to say it, but it may have been a situation where the journalist was allowed to cover it, because I'm sure other people have been making inquiries for some time, um, but maybe they were trying to get ahead of the facts, uh, you know, or get ahead of the the fallout, poor choice of words there, but, you know, the social fallout of this. Perfect choice of words there, Ben, and ironically, or I always misuse that, 1979 was when the Three Mile Island disaster took place. So that's a perfect time to slide that in under the radar, you know, and an investigation since then have happened in 1989, the Department of Energy launched investigation or concluded an investigation. And they said there was widespread contamination, radioactive and chemical contamination, because remember, we're talking 30,000 rocket tests that were spread across the Santa Susana site. It was riddled with it. And the report clearly pointed to several cover ups over at least the past few decades. This was reported, but as you said, primarily in local media. And again, this is almost 1990 now. Uh, the local population, the municipal governments, they reacted. The lawsuits started to roll in and people lobbied to shut down any continued nuclear activity at the site. Because remember, that went on until 2006. Yes, uh, that's true. And on uh, July 26th of 1994, two scientists, Otto K. Heine and Larry A. Pugh, were killed when the chemicals they were illegally burning in those open pits, surprise, surprise, exploded. Uh, there was a grand jury investigation and an FBI raid on the facility, and three Rocketdyne officials pled guilty uh, to uh, illegally storing explosive materials in June of 2004. Uh, the jury was, uh, though, deadlocked uh, on the more serious charge, which related to illegal burning of hazardous waste. And this isn't burning trash in your backyard, my friends. This is not leaf piles you know, without a permit. This is a wanton disregard for uh, not only the safety of your employees, but of, of the public. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And, you know, you have to wonder, too, whether there is any um, corruption of the jury, right? Any witness intimidation or tampering. We don't have solid proof of that, but I... I don't know, maybe I'm cynical to think that that could be in the cards. A million percent. We, yeah, yeah. We have, we have also um, information on ongoing medical claims. 
There's an epidemiologist named Hal Morgenstern, and he conducted a long-term study. Between 1988 and 2002, he found that people living within two miles of the lab site are 60% more likely to be diagnosed with certain specific cancers uh, compared to residents living just five miles from the site. Uh, so there, there is a clear correlation here. Well, and it's it's what it's just a more extreme example, but it's what they refer to as like the fallout zone. You know, there is a, a range around this the the uh, area where this radiation radiates from that you know is going to be more susceptible to this stuff. And then you know, further away, it's it's much difficult, more, much more difficult, um, unless you know something like wind patterns carry it farther. Or you know, even with Fukushima, there was concern that birds were carrying radioactive materials outside of, of beyond that that fallout zone. Um, so, yeah, this absolutely makes sense. And in October of 2006, the Santa Susana Field Laboratory Advisory Panel, um, which was, uh, you know, supposedly an independent uh, review board composed of scientists and researchers from around the U.S., uh, concluded that based on the available data and computer models, contamination of the facility resulted in an estimated 260 cancer-related deaths. Yeah, um, yeah. There were multiple lawsuits uh, that have been in the works. Companies like Boeing have also reached settlements with some plaintiffs, though the settlements remain controversial. There, there's an article in the L.A. Times called "How One Woman's Fight Is Helping Workers Decades After Santa Susana Radiation Exposure," and it talks about. Uh, this woman named Bonnie Clee, who worked for Rocketdyne in the 60s and 70s, has kind of really come forward uh, to champion the case of her fellow uh, employees and, and co-workers who you know, were affected by this. She um, started having pain in her bladder, and she went and saw a doctor who told her that uh, she had cancer, and it was likely due to occupational hazards. Um, and there have been uh, payouts thus far, but there was even an issue where the Department of Labor had, in fact, denied many of the claims um, filed by these workers who were stricken with cancer. Um, and this was under a program called the 2000 Energy Employees Occupational Illness Program Act. So the burden of proof was just obviously very, very difficult to, to achieve. Um, and she helped compile letters and press releases and news articles and all of this stuff and helped kind of get that uh, decision overturned. So folks were able to receive restitution for this condition. Let me let me go back in. Um, so in in the notes of my research, I I just mention companies like Boeing reaching uh, settlements, but I also want to mention I want to hit that line about multiple lawsuits being actively in the works. This story doesn't have an ending yet. Uh, one plaintiff, Margaret Ann Galasso, she sued Boeing, but she said her attorneys went behind her back and accepted a $30 million settlement with Boeing, but they never got her approval. And she thinks they were doing it because they get a 60% cut after, mm. you know, their costs and fees, which can happen. And then um, there are also, there are also uh, problems with how settlements are being distributed to people. Like some plaintiffs are only receiving, you know, at the end of the day, something like $30,000. And in the United States, if you have a serious medical condition, 
$30,000 is not going to solve your problem. No, you know? it's a sneeze. Sadly. No. Right, exactly. So you can see how these settlements are rightly controversial. I just want to make sure that I emphasize that these are ongoing legal battles. That's right. Um, and, and just to, to quickly backtrack to Bonnie Clee, um, when she assembled all those materials and those petitions and delivered them to the uh, federal government in 2007, as I said, it did lead to a change and the ability for, for folks to get those claims accepted. But it's fascinating. Uh, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH, um, created a special designation just for that field lab. Uh, in this 280-acre area four um, that we've talked about uh, extensively. Um, and this was for workers um, who were exposed for at least 250 days between January 1st of 1955 and January 31st of 1958, and then it was eventually expanded to 1965. So it's cool to see at least, you know, uh, an individual being able to make some change, but then you're right, Ben, the quality of those payouts kind of trumps the quantity at, at times, right? Yeah. So uh, the employees were, you know, probably the most directly exposed, but, uh, you know, innocent residents were exposed. People in real life were getting sick and they had no idea why. There's another angle here that should be considered more closely, especially um, as it affects the future, a way that a lot of people don't think about. As you might recall, Conspiracy realist, California, like other parts of the world, has recently been plagued by wildfires and uh, many indications uh, to tell us or lead us to believe that uh, depending on weather conditions, these wildfires may become a semi-regular or annual thing. At two, a little bit before 2.30 on November 8th, 2018, just a few years ago, South California Edison reported a circuit outage at the uh, Susana site. And two minutes later, there were flames seen in a canyon near that location. There was a guy there, uh, a reporter named Stu Mundell, working for KCAL 9. He was overhead in a helicopter, took a picture before the fire broke out. It turned out that Boeing had, before this fire began, they had disabled and taken apart a lot of the uh, fire suppression systems at the site. So people couldn't even... People couldn't even fight small fires at this location. And this led L.A. County Deputy Fire Chief at the time, Vince Pena, to say they could have stopped what would later become known as the Woolsey Forest Fire. By one estimate, this fire by itself released 40,000 tons of ash contaminated with radiation and chemicals. And with, you know, if there's not an extensive cleanup, which still has not happened, then we have to reasonably assume something worse could happen the next time a wildfire rolls through town. This is dangerous. This is, uh, um, you know, like the uh, old Harrison Ford film. This is clear and present danger. Get off my plane. Wait, mm -hmm. that's a different movie. That was, what was that? Air Force One. Sorry. Oh, I forgot remember, about that one. Remember, he yeah. was the he was the he was the the ass kicking president. president. Yeah, he was the president, yeah. but he like you know took on the terrorists single handedly. Um, but it's true, Ben, and all of this still is ongoing. Like you said, the story's not over in terms of the folks whose lives were upended by this, you know, who lost loved ones, and also the site itself is still not 
cleaned up. Um, that there was an agreement that was made uh, with the federal government to clean up the the site, but then it was determined that it wasn't realistic, and it was uh, it was kind of thrown out. It's still uh, kind of in limbo right now, and it's really not clear as to when this will take place. You know, I go back to Savannah Riverside really quick, just just for some like firsthand knowledge of the efforts there. It is an ongoing process cleaning up the Savannah Riverside. They have to test wildlife, Ben, constantly. They tag turtles by drilling little holes in their shells and putting these trackers in there, and they find the same turtle and then test them for radiation to see, to track how uh, effective their cleanup efforts have been over time. And because they're the turtles go out and wander, you know, and they could potentially pick it up. And there are these open uh, pits that I was talking about that they've had to fill in and clean up and all of that. And so that is ongoing and as is this, but it doesn't appear here, Ben, that there are even really any measures put in place at all. At least Savannah Riverside's been sort of, you know, on track and, and making ongoing efforts to clean up that stuff, but uh, it really is a, a slippery slope there. Savannah also has a nuclear weapon missing somewhere off the coast in the water, so they have got yep. they got a lot to struggle with. So going back to SSFL, going back to the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, uh, I want to note there was a EPA study in 2012, pretty extensive cost uh, taxpayers around $41 million, and they showed that there are astronomical levels of radiation in the area. This is, we're going to get into the weeds maybe a little bit, but this is important because we all need to be aware of just how much radiation we're talking about here. The presence of things like strontium-90 tests 284 times higher than normal, cesium-137 is over 9,000 times higher than normal, plutonium-239, 92 times higher. The, the hits keep coming, and these, are, these measures are pulled like 24 feet below the soil surface. So that's super deep. That's a lot of penetration. And, um, you know, both private entities like Boeing and the U.S. government have continued to say they're going to do something. Uh, Boeing currently owns most of the site, they bought it in 1996. They want to turn it into something they call an open space habitat. But really, you know, when you look at how much, uh, how, how much energy and how much uh, money is going to have to go into the effort to fix this, you can see how I, I get the feeling a lot of people are passing the bill around. You know what I mean? It's uh, there. There's a guy who's, who probably knows the most in the world at least officially, about SSFL, is a guy named Dan Hirsch, Professor Dan Hirsch. He used to direct Santa Cruz's program on environmental and nuclear policy. He says everything in the area is heavily contaminated. It has uh, approximately 100 different unique toxic chemicals in the soil, including, you know, we mentioned the radiation or the radioactive stuff, but we didn't mention the heavy metals like mercury, the volatile organic compounds, VOCs. Fun fact about VOCs, probably my favorite fact about VOCs, uh, that's what forms new car smell. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that at all, Ben. Um, you're hearing the heat, uh, or you're you're smelling. Sorry, my synesthesia is coming out. You're smelling the um, the chemicals that uh, 
you know, that release when stuff inside your car is heated on a hot day. That's why a newer car will smell like VOC or sometimes your car, just if it's hot, will smell like that. I know. I think, is, 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 is it meant to kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of mimic like the smell of like hot leather seats, you know? It's kind of what I've always assumed. A new car smell is. Yeah, yeah or, or maybe it's just like hot seats in general and like all the chemicals that go into like coating those seats and the fabric and all of that stuff to treat it, to make it like stain resistant. It really does just, it's weird that we people like it because they associate it with this concept uh, of owning a thing or of like, you know, mm-hmm. something that's new, but it really is just mm-hmm. a chemical smell. Yeah, and it's and it's bad for you over time, uh, but you know, I'm I'm a little bit of a gearhead. I, I love that stuff. Uh, I used to, I used to have it just sprayed around the house until we did an episode on car stuff, and I learned exactly what I was snorting. So uh, lesson learned there. Uh, luckily, uh, that didn't make my house super contaminated. But Professor Hirsch points out that, in his opinion, and again, he's very well acquainted with this, the Santa Susana Field Experiment site is. Again, this is just his opinion saying this. He says it's the most contaminated site in the United States by any measure. Uh, and he thinks that even the um, the studies that have been released on the correlation between cancer and chronic health conditions, uh, the one in 2006, he thinks that still isn't the whole truth. He thinks there's much more to the story. We're just scratching the scandalous surface of this this cover up. I, I don't. I guess it's not ongoing because people can talk about it now, but it's not resolved. Yeah, because the study that was released in 2006 estimated that between 300 and 1800. That's a pretty wide swath. People developed cancer as a result of the 1959 meltdown. That's the meltdown, not. The other incidents, uh, the uh, or the thirty thousand rocket engine tests that we talked about at the top of the show, so absolutely just scratching the uh, the super scandalous surface of of these cover ups, which are not conspiracy theories, my friends. Uh, the these are that that is what this is. This is a conspiracy to cover up a very real thing that happened that the public should have known about, but that they did not want you to know. Mm-hmm. Yes, and. This story, unfortunately, doesn't end. This is ongoing. So we want to thank Wayne for, uh, for hipping us to this uh, at, at, the risk of, um, at the risk of sounding like I live in too much of a, a weird cover-up bubble. I'm, I, I, I'm usually aware of these things, so I learned a lot in the, the research for this episode. And I want to know, like many people living there in Southern California – I want a resolution too. We want to hear your thoughts. Were you aware of this? Do you have personal experience with it? Let us know. Uh, while you're at it, why not let us know about any other nuclear or industrial cover-ups in your neck of the global woods? You can find us pretty much anywhere on the internet. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Shout out to our community page. Here's where it gets crazy. Uh, you can follow us there. You can also follow us as individuals. You sure can. And I just want to say I was completely unaware of the story as well and, and, and just blown away by the fact that it was just these regional – I mean, LA Times obviously a big publication, but it was all sources from right around that part of the, the, the world. So if you have stories like this, please let us know in all those ways Ben said. And if you do want to find us as individuals, you can find me on Instagram where I am at How Now Noel Brown. 
I am at Ben Bolin HSW on Twitter. I am at Ben Bolin on Instagram. Matt is on Instagram, but he's he's kind of he's got a weird conspiracy of his own about it. You'll have to follow the breadcrumbs. Let us know what you find. Uh, if you don't like social media, we get it. We got a phone number. You can call us anytime. We are one eight three three. S-T-D-W-Y-T-K. But hold on, you might say. What, what do I do if I hate social media? What, do I, what, what if I, I hate phones? We've got good news for you, folks. We have one last way to contact us any old time you want, 24-7, every day of the year. And that is our email address, where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health, but by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Thank you. 